Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Mike Adams, the co-founder and CEO of Grain, a SaaS product that helps you capture and share insights from customer meetings. In 2018, Mike, together with his brother Jake, co-founded Grain. This was Mike's third startup venture after previously co-founding Degreed and Mission U, which was acquired by WeWork. But instead of starting with a problem, the brothers began with a solution in mind and set out to find a problem that it could solve. As you can imagine, that approach didn't work out too well. Their first year proved challenging as they struggled to identify their ideal customer profile. Mike jokingly said that at the time, their ICP was anyone who would talk to them and like their product. However, after a year of refining their approach, they discovered their actual ICP and focused on one standout feature that seemed to be resonating the most with their customers. And this led them to throw away their existing code and rebuild the product from scratch focused around that single feature. Grain eventually started to get traction when the founders invested more time in interviewing prospective customers as well as their existing ones. This not only helped the founders build a better product, but it also gave them deeper and some surprising insights about their target customers. Fast forward to today, Grain hit 1 million in ARR about a year ago, has amassed around 1,300 customers, and raised $21 million, including a recent $16 million Series A round. In this episode, you'll learn how Mike and Jake figured out their ideal customer profile, which helped them improve both their product development and marketing how Grain grew from zero to 1,300 customers, including companies such as Slack, Zapier, Webflow, and more. Mike shares lessons on how to avoid herd mentality and think more for yourself in order to get more creative ideas and unique solutions. And we also talk about learning to trust your instincts as a founder when making decisions, even when everyone around you tells you to go another way. And we talk about how to handle competition and stay ahead when other businesses are copying your ideas, features, and tactics. So I hope you enjoy it. Is your team struggling with spreadsheets that can't keep up with your workflows? It's time to switch to Jotform Tables. Jotform Tables is an all-in-one workspace that lets you collect, organize, and manage data seamlessly. Not only can you create online forms to gather data directly in Jotform Tables, but it also serves as a powerful tool to manage and analyze the data collected from your existing Jotform forms. You can also import spreadsheets or enter information manually, and all your data is stored securely in one place. Jotform Tables makes collaboration a breeze. You can share your tables with a single click and work with your team in real time. Say goodbye to version control issues and hello to efficient teamwork. Get started with Jotform tables for free today at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Are you looking to sell your online business or buy one to start your entrepreneurial journey? Discover exciting opportunities with bupos.com. Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses and the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers. At bupos.com, you can explore their exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. Bupos can offer pre-approved financing for recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding with no personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash Bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next deal. Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? 
As a SaaS founder, you know that having the right tools is crucial for growing your SaaS business effectively. But with so many options, choosing the best ones for your needs can be overwhelming. That's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This handy guide covers the 12 essential types of tools you need to supercharge your growth. Inside, you'll find a detailed look at tools successful SaaS startups have used to scale to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you choose the right tools for your SaaS business. Don't miss out. Visit thesastoolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock faster growth for your SaaS business. That's thesastoolkit.com. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, awesome to be here. Do you have a favorite quote? Something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? Yeah, for fear of it being too long, just to kick things off. But uh, I recently got recommended to read the book, um, Boys in the Boat. And it's kind of a random quote that is usually not one that, that gets quoted. But it just to me, it really resonated. When you're trying to build a business, you're trying to build um, company. I, this is my third startup. And I, I just feel like it's been true of the best times of, of all the companies I've been in. So the story is about um, some ragamuffins in the early 1900 depression era in Washington state who become the best crew in the entire world. So like rowing crew. And they end up competing against uh, the Germans in the Olympics and they win in Germany while Hitler's there. And it's really incredible. And so it kind of follows the story of, I would say like the main character's name is Joe. And he talks about um, how, when he's being interviewed about how the boat was some something that was like more than the boat. And the quote specifically is, it was a shared experience. It was something mysterious, almost beyond definition. It was a shared experience, a singular thing that had unfolded in a golden sliver of time long ago when nine good-hearted young men strove together, pulled together as one, gave everything they had for one another, bound together forever by pride and respect and love. Joe was crying, at least in part, for the loss of that vanished moment, but more, I think, for the sheer beauty of it. Sorry for that being a little bit on the long side, but like, it's a really powerful quote for me of this, this, this feeling you have when you're building something great with other people. And you're, 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 you're doing your part, they're doing their part, and you just kind of can row in unison. And, it, and it's almost beyond words to the point that this man was interviewed in his 90s and was crying about this time long gone because of that bond that he had. And I feel like startups are, you know, that for me. That's great. It's, it's unique. It's got a, a great story behind it. And uh, you sharing something, no matter how short or long it is, as long as it resonates with you. Is, is really what that question is about. So appreciate you sharing that. Um, so tell us about Grain. What does the product do? Who's it for? What's the main problem you're helping to solve? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we recognized, uh, we started in 2018 and recognized that conversations were going to be happening over Zoom and meet in teams um, way more than they were going to be happening in person. And then COVID went bananas <laughs> and kind of permanently shifted a lot of these things from the analog world to the digital world. So what Grain does is we record, transcribe, and um, analyze using large language models to um, identify the core insights and summarize uh, large unstructured conversations down into you know specific moments that are portable and shareable. So I don't know if you've ever used a Loom, but a Grain highlight is like a 30 seconds from a Zoom call that you can embed in Slack or your Notion or whatever. And that's kind of the killer feature that everyone's really loved, that you can take a voice of the customer and, and, and share it or, or, or talk about a specific moment when you're coaching during a sales call or whatever else it may be. Okay, great. So before we get into Grain and the story, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you, you have an interesting background. As you mentioned, this is your third startup. So can you just give us a quick summary of uh, you know, what you were doing before you started Grain? Sure. So my story starts as the first person in my family to ever graduate from college. And 
my dad being a really hardworking construction worker who thought that the best jobs for his kids would be a doctor or a lawyer or any of those ones that you know about. And I graduated with a bunch of debt and no real clear direction. I knew I didn't want to be any of those things and moved to San Francisco because my wife had a job. And so um, I met, uh, I worked in litigation consulting, which is, was great. Like very con- consulting skill set. I, 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 I'm really grateful that I have that foundation, but I got bored pretty quickly and met uh who ended up being my first co-founder at a party um, in San Francisco. And I got into startups from there. And so the first company I started is called Degreed. Um, But my first two companies and really like how I got into startups is around solving that problem I mentioned of kind of that gap from, holy crap, I have a boatload of debt, or maybe I don't even want to go into debt to get to school. And I want to figure out what I want to do. So shortening that gap and, and the cost there to, to kind of go from, to really start and launch a career and in particular, the, the tech, acquiring the technical skills that are usually the most important to get that first job. And so Degreed is uh, in, in, in that world around credentialing. And then I started a, my second company called Mission U, which was a one-year school on the back of uh, Zoom. So Zoom was the only really reliable video conferencing at the time. And our premise was that we could basically give you what's in a four-year, including technical and soft skills in, um, in one year instead of four and we could do it completely online. And we, that was two years. We got acquired by WeWork in 2018. And on the heels of that, uh, I started Grain with the recognition that, uh, wow, like, you know, we recorded every single meeting at Mission U, our student sessions, our team meetings, our admissions interviews, and there's going to be a giant opportunity and category to make sense of that. And so that's kind of where, uh, where, where Grain got started. I had to like have an explicit moment there where I like left ed tech behind because I love ed tech. And I was like, I'm just going to go into like B2B SaaS and um, frankly, no regrets. I want to talk a little bit more about how you came up with the idea for, for Grain. Uh, before we do that, give us a sense of the size of the business. Where are you in terms of revenue, customers, size of team? Yeah, for sure. So we've crossed the, the million dollar uh, threshold in annual recurring revenue um, last year. And um, we have about 1,300 customers. We tend to serve a kind of SMB segment. A lot of tools in our space and kind of video meeting intelligence, uh, there's a huge, I would say, market in sales. We have sales folks who use our product. It's actually about a third of our users, but we deliberately chose not to be a sales only solution. And we recognize that, you know, the kind of 80-20 functionality of a a tool like Grain is, is needed across a lot of different rules and there's roles and there's a lot of benefit in having one tool from cost savings to kind of centralization of data and analysis. Um, but that's a little bit around kind of where we're at. Team size is about, uh, um, we're about 18. And you guys have raised about 20 million? Yeah, good question. So we've raised $21 million in funding. Our most recent round was our Series A um, in summer. Well, it was actually fall 2021, which was a great time to raise. Um and uh, we raised from Tiger Global and Unusual Ventures. And uh, before that, we you know had partnership with uh, Zoom. Uh, they have a fund and Slack and other great you know uh, venture capital partners partners as well. Great. So let's talk a little bit more about where the idea for Grain came from. You mentioned it a little bit a little bit earlier, but just just tell me what were you doing at the time, and what was the aha moment that that kind of really kind of crystallized this opportunity for you. In that second startup that I started in 2016, um, I was coming out of actually being part of the coding bootcamp world. And I had worked at a coding bootcamp. I actually was one of the first students at one of the first coding bootcamps because I wanted to learn to code in 2013. 
And uh, so I worked at a coding boot camp. And one of the things we kept running into was uh, we'd find out like at the end of the program, whether someone was a good admit or not. And all the data was gone before we could really update our algorithmic process to understand like who we should admit and who, who we're going to have a harder time being able to find a job. And so um, I kind of took that experience into Mission U when we started, which was the one year online alternative to college. And from day one, the first person I hired was an engineer. The second person we hired was in systems. And we immediately started um, kind of with this premise that every conversation that, that's happening, whether it's a student or it's an internal meeting, whether it's a vendor, whether it's a, you know a, a, a client that we're trying to sell that we're trying to pitch our students to, we should capture all of that because it's data that shouldn't be lost and, and ephemeral. And so, um, I guess I had that insight bef- two years before Grain, and so then Mission U kind of had a sudden demise. We had we raised thirteen million dollars. We had eight and a half left in the bank, and. Um, this was when WeWork's cap table was uh, really, really big, and they were throwing their cap table around with you know their stock in large numbers. That basically kind of is how Mission U ended up getting acquired by WeWork, and they they unfortunately shut down the school like soon thereafter. Even though it started in the acquisition as like a you know we're going to have a WeWork and or sorry we're going to have a Mission U in every WeWork, it ended up more realistically being about uh, getting my co-founder to kind of go and work with with WeWork and. I, I didn't really have any desire or interest to go um, work with WeWork. Um, and so I got an intellectual property rights waiver. And I was even almost considering a pivot of like, let's just take this company and turn it into, you know, what became Grain. But that's the main thing I wanted from that acquisition was an intellectual property rights waiver, be free and easy to, um, and, and then clear to kind of build on that previous experience. So I guess in summary, like, I was always looking from my first startup until, because I've been a co-pilot is what I call it twice. First time I was not the CEO, second time I was not the CEO, and third time I was the CEO. And I feel like I was always, it was always mysterious about like where you find that idea that can turn into like a real viable business. And what I had learned, and it turned out to be very true, is that the best ideas usually come in the, in the, in the, make, in the process of solving your own problems, especially if you're in a business position trying to solve business problems then it's easier to identify B2B problems. Usually when startup founders are like trying to find an idea, um, at least when I do my kind of mentorship work, like 98% of the time they're consumer ideas because that's what, you know, is front and center in my life around like I need a sports pickup app to, you know, find other people to play tennis with. I can't tell you how many guys. I actually think there's actually some successful businesses that have that idea, but that idea gets found a lot as people are kind of trying to think of something to start. And uh, I guess a, one more piece of flavor on that I distinctly remember before I started my second company, I was like, I'm going to you know, be the CEO. I'm going to, that's going to be my idea. And my wife was like, no, you're not. <laughs> it was a, it was, it was a humbling moment because she knows me better than anybody. So we're out to dinner and I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to do this and do this. And she's like, you don't have like a very clear idea. You don't have, you know, X and Y and Z. And I was like, dang, you're right. And so then I found my, my partner, my business partner, um, my second co-founder who had all of those things. And then I was able to learn a little bit more of those ropes. And by the time, you know, we started Grain. Um, I, I had the, you know, the network of venture capitalists. I had the insight for a great idea and, and my wife is, is, is very wise. They usually are. All right. So how, how did you get started, uh, with, with grain? Did you, did you build an MVP? Did you start interviewing customers before you wrote any code? What was the approach you took? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think because I came out with this recognition around kind of these data pipelines of you're generating a whole bunch of different conversational data 
it's unstructured, it's not really useful, and you need to go through kind of a refining process. And then there needs to be a distribution process as well. I kind of, on the whiteboard, even when I was still Mission U, I actually called it Zebra at the time. But it was just a, a concept of what needed to be uh, solved and for me personally. And then I just from there went out and said, do other people have this problem? And so at the time, hardly anybody was doing the vast majority of their conversations over Zoom, um, almost not very many. So I, I first had to kind of start and find those folks. The thing that I, I guess I've learned um, when it comes to starting things is you want to find uh, an idea that has the, high, the best ratio of value a differentiated value and the least amount of behavior change. So if you can find something that people are already doing, and then you can do something on top of that, that like massively adds a lot of value, that is going to be a far more likely you know product to get adoption than if something's super valuable and awesome, but they're going to have to change everything about their workflow. Um, and that's what makes like Slack in particular, like a really interesting and unique um um, in, in fact, in as uh, we don't sell saddles here, blog post that Stuart sent to the team when they like launched in 2013, um, he specifically calls out that like the definition of innovation is is how much behavior change. And Slack calls out that like they were requiring a lot of behavior change of their users. Stuart Butterfield can pull that off because <laughs> he's Stuart Butterfield. I would advise most founders to like just try to you know stay within the realm of of the least amount of behavior change. Um, and then try to find those opportunities where there's, you know, differentiated values. So to tie that back to grain, I was looking for the, ta- for the, for the teams that were already recording, they were already transcribing, they were already finding value and there weren't very many of them, but I felt like that was the part that was going to change because of the unique value. And so then once I started building, we started building solutions for them. It really was just like tinkering. Like we were in my, my brother's my co-founder and we were just in the shed in his backyard at Menlo Park. And we would come up with this idea where what if we added a timestamp next to um, the note that you took in real time. So there's like a cognitive connection between like me thinking something and typing a note and then the root material in the recording that that's related to um, based on the association of when it was typed. And that insight turned into a quick little prototype. Um, it, it ended up, I'd say, being the kernel of, of, of grain, even though in the end, we're actually at a place now to where we're increasingly deprecating the, the encouragement of a user to, you know, mark down a moment of cognition because AI is increasingly just faster and easier and better at, you know, now when you finish a grain recording, you've got like an instant, you know, 10 bullet point summary of the meeting and you didn't have to take any notes at all. So, but that's where it started. And then people really liked that idea. And I had to kind of pull it up apart and say, like, what is it that people like about this? And then that has kind of been really important as we move into an AI world because it still carries through. What they liked about it was that it was a it was a link back to truth. It was a link back to reality, that there was this backing up evidence of the ephemeral world that we live in so much of our working days that I can grab the moment where the customer said it instead of regurgitating what the customer said or the moment where we agreed to it instead of like helping that you trust my word that we remember, you know, the agreement or the commitment in the same way. And that was like the kernel, I would say, of truth that we've built, you know, the entire thing of brain around, even though when I started the company, we didn't, we didn't know that that was what was going to be it. Yeah. I, I think you mentioned that uh, when we were talking before that it took about a year for you to get to that sort of pivot where you realized that, this was the one thing that users cared the most about and everything else was almost like a distraction to them, right? Before we we, we talk about that, I want to go back to something you said earlier about really finding 
you know, the right problem to, to solve, which is the way we should be doing things. But you also told, you made a kind of a, a confession before we started recording about you didn't quite take that approach in, you know, in, in the early days. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, exactly. So you hear this phrase a lot and it's what I mentioned to you before the show is we did that. That's not, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to start with a solution and then go and try to find what problem it solves, but we did that. And it did, I would say in general work for us, but it is, it's, it's, it's a tough kind of foundation to build from because then you kind of have to like work backwards into, you know, a nice, an ideal customer profile or a persona or whoever it's for. And it's been a challenge for us, as we've said from the very beginning that we want to be horizontal. We don't want to be a verticalized solution. We want to be, you know, the best tool for, I would say, small teams. So if like you're a sales leader at a startup, like you should absolutely use grain over, you know, the, the best in class enterprise solution, it's going to cost you 10 times more. Um, but one of the challenges of building for a lot of different personas at once, and when you kind of start with like a solution that backs into solving a problem, is you realize, especially if you create a pretty great solution, which I think, you know, we, we, we did at Grain, it solves a lot of different problems. And the long tail of solving those problems is how you build great businesses and you have to make choices. So as the time's gone on with grain, we've just gotten more and more narrow. I would say we describe our strategy now as a T-shaped strategy to where we're building to kind of the 80-20 solution that anybody, it's simple enough. What people love about our product is it's just kind of intuitive and it's not overbuilt. It's not overcomplicated. So it works for everybody, but we still have to have that kind of deep spike to where we know the first person who's usually going to adopt it and that we build for their use case. And then it can kind of spread from there. And to be frank, like that has been a real journey. It's been tough to kind of figure it out because there's a lot of little spikes, you know, from the T where you're like, is it this one or is it this one? And if you start specifically from a really clear understanding of, of a problem and then you work and then you, and then you test different solutions against it, which is the more traditional path, I would say you can kind of avoid some of the, um, challenges that we've had going the other way where it solves so many problems. It's just a matter of like, how do we think strategically about which problem to, to focus on as like the, the deepest spike and, and, and as the core focus. When I asked you about your ICP before we started recording, you said in the first year, our ICP was basically anybody who would talk to us. Anybody who thought it was cool. We were like, isn't this cool? Like, yeah, that is cool. Great. You're our ICP. Awesome. Um, and, and it took about a year for you to start to get some clarity. Like, how did you figure out who to focus on? Because that's always the, one of the hardest decisions for any, any founder to make. Oh, man, we've done it so many. It's a continuous process constantly. And like, we just did another wave of it. And it was like eye opening. And then we compared it against like the positioning that we did six months ago when we just did it. And we're like, oh, my gosh, this is so different largely because the large language models like came into fruition and GPT-4 just got released yesterday and like the world is changing under our feet. So that was part of it, but we're constantly doing a qualitative research process of talking to our customers and our users. It's just the way we go about it and what those interview guides are and what we're looking for. That usually changes as we've evolved over time because you go from the early days where you're just trying to do something called evaluative research. I actually have a blog post on this. If you go to mgadams.com, I think it, I don't write a lot. So it's like the second blog post, but it's under, the founder's guide to understanding your users. And I wrote this like two years into grain, having gone through kind of phase one, which was like, first thing you need to do is, you know, have this kind of evaluative test to make sure that um, what you're doing is, is, is even, you know, a problem that people, you know, want solved. And then you kind of need to do, you know, different series of tests 
But at the beginning, you're kind of going from nothing, putting it in front of people's faces. And you should read the mom test if you haven't. Um, anybody on this podcast? Because Rob Fitzpatrick really enlightened me around like how when you do that work, if you present too much of yourself with it, people will like try to protect you and, and they'll like say, they'll, they, they won't tell you the truth. They'll be like, oh, I think it's actual. I would totally use this. And they're like, never going to use it. So what we would do is we would actually distance ourselves. We built this like, especially when we did that kind of pivot about a year in, we, we, we ran this process pretty rigorously. We brought people into our office and we just had them like go through it. And we pretended like it was somebody else's product and we didn't even build it. And we were the third parties that were just like trying to get feedback for somebody else. So they were like, oh yeah, I hate this. I love this. And that was like huge because the first time we went around, it was our friends and they were all like, oh yeah, this is the greatest thing ever. But it didn't really give us the clarity that we needed to, to know exactly who we were building for or what, you know, what the roadmap should look like. And so we knew it was definitely like a, a, a leaping moment when we, we did that. I would say we threw all the code base away from the first year and we started over from scratch on that, on that inside I mentioned. That process we ran that was like, I would say, more rigorous and, and, and better at distancing and getting that truth um, and, and just really understanding whether or not putting something in front of people, they would use it and why. That, that was the foundation of kind of the next phase of the business. And then I would say we launched that into the world and um, COVID hit and we actually had like seven or eight YC companies that all got funded that were literally just doing what we had like launched and pushed in the market about a month after COVID. And yeah, it was, it was kind of a wild time. And so then all of a sudden you're in this world where you're like, whoa, like clearly if we're having like YC companies literally rip off everything about our website and then copy every feature that we do, like we, you know, just word for word and, 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 and pixel for pixel, basically um, we were clearly have solved something in this kind of second phase. So then what you're looking for is that kind of set, like more around the product market fit. You're like, clearly we built something of substance and value that people care about, but like who cares about it most? Who's willing to pay the most? What are the messages that resonate with them? What are the features that they need? And, and then how does it grow inside of an organization? And that's been, I would say, the subsequent set of qualitative processes that we've run. And not to shill my own product, but we use our own product for that, which is like, we literally couldn't do that if we didn't have all of those meetings being recorded. Because like our head of product, Jeff, will go and interview 15 people. So he interviewed our 15. He just did this one, interviewed 15 of our top 40 accounts. And, and we had an interview guy that was trying to understand the commonality between them because they're very different. Like our, our, our user profile is because it's horizontal. It's not clear exactly who uh, is using it for what. And we ran that qualitative process and oh my gosh, by the end of it, I watched all of them. He watched all of them. We were like clipping out the moments and then, and then collaborating and, and building our hypotheses. And then we realized like something that was insanely counterintuitive that, that honestly I had no idea was, was rooted in reality until I heard like 10 of our top customers say it in the exact same way, like just over and over again. And I was like, okay, I, I didn't realize that we were actually like um, valued in, in, in that way more so than this way that I thought we were valued before. Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces, and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupos has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. 
and their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with bupos.com. What was it that they said that that kind of gave you that insight? You know, specifically what we found was that like, we've always positioned ourselves as like a, almost kind of in the research space. Like if there's a vertical spike that we go on, we've always been more about like product insights and user insights and user research. So a lot of that is biased by the fact that we did have product market fit there and we still do. But um, there's a lot of issues that are associated with the frequency of use in that use case. Product managers love to say they talk to product, <laughs> sorry, to customers. Most of them don't. You know, user researchers are now a big giant company where you need, you know, all sorts of, you know, different, uh, you know, situations versus a smaller company that can kind of pick it up, which is more in line with our self-serve motion. What we, what we learned was that like, you know, for mo our most successful accounts, almost all of them had kind of come through a salesperson who was looking for a cheaper version of the, you know, $150 a seat products that are built specifically for sales. And then from there, they would advocate for the customer to the product team to try to say like, let's build this feature. And then the product team would adopt it. And then the marketing team would adopt it. And then we kind of spread from there. So I always thought before this, that we kind of entered through product and then we spread to the team. Um, in fact, that's what was in a series H pitch. And it was very, very clear after a qualitative research process, we actually enter far more often through um, a sales and, and, and revenue team motion and then spread to the team from there because they have so much more a higher frequency of usage. There's um, existing tools in the market that we are get we get compared against and that we can, you know, stand out in terms of our simplicity and our affordability and our accessibility. So once we have that insight, it's 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 really changed a lot around, I would say, the the prioritization on our on our on our current roadmap. I think that's such a a great point. You're you're right. I think we hear people talking more about that they talk to customers than actually you know, the number of conversations that are going on. But if you hadn't gone through and done these interviews, then maybe you'd never have had that insight and you'd still be thinking, you know, product is a point of entry and everything you'd be doing in terms of messaging and onboarding and whatever could still be focused in, in the wrong place, right? So there's, there's definitely value in doing it. I know in the it kind of after that year when you sort of re you sort of pivoted you you were using linkedin and twitter for thought leadership but you were also doing user interviews with people in the first 30 days of them signing up for the product can you just explain like what were you doing and what was the motivation behind that sure so this is like 3 years ago what we did was we it was mostly userinterviews.com, but we would we had like just a landing page, and uh, but and so for the people in userinterviews.com, we didn't even use a landing page. We just said, hey, uh, we, we targeted product managers; those are the people we thought it was for, and we said, hey, here's our research process, and it's going to be this kind of onboarding interview where I'm going to show you how to use this like brand new product. It's behind a page, like a beta wall. You're getting beta access to it, and it's free. You don't even have to pay for it. So I'd go through my interview process to kind of like make sure there's a lot of qualification in there, making sure that they were the right person I was looking for. And, and then I would onboard them on the product and then I would, and then I would follow up with them in 30 days and almost all of them would agree, agreed to follow up. And then we would kind of submit the, the bounty for the payment. I don't know if they still allow you to do it that way, but that's how we did it. And it was awesome. Like we found seriously our first like 15, 20 customers that way. Um, and then we opened it up a little bit to, you know, trying to drive some you know traffic to the landing page, but we kept it in closed beta 
And it was actually right when COVID hit that we had a board meeting and, and one of our investors really urged us to go out into the market and to try to like, you know, capitalize in the moment because we all thought it was going to be like two weeks. We're like, oh my gosh, this thing is like perfectly positioned for like remote, you know, world that we live in all of a sudden. And we might as well, if we don't launch now, then the window is going to be gone and it's going to last two weeks and it turned out it lasted you know, close to two years. And honestly, that was a mistake. That was a major mistake. We should have stayed in closed beta for longer. You know, it's this really t- difficult balance, especially if kind of like what I was saying about consumer products where they're kind of obvious. I'll be honest, like rain is not the most like differentiated insight in the world. Like anybody who works in a digital environment, it's just that I was in a digital environment like years before everybody else. And I, so I was able to connect some of these dots and, and, and find the right investor partners and, and team and, and we built a great product. But like, man, we, we, we invited just an absurd amount of competition that is real. That, that's really tough. It's tough to kind of get to that, that breakout when there was also this comp, there's also this component of in 2012, like money was flowing, sorry, 2020 and 2021 money was flowing like candy in the private markets because the interest rates were so low. And so we're in a different market now, obviously with the interest rates higher and, you know, venture isn't as, you know, desirable of an LP asset as it was. And so there's going to be less competition. There's going to be less money in our space. And so it's good that, you know, we have that position, but just to like really tie it back to your original question, like that, that was the right move was to try to really curate the right people in and just get them using the product. And for the first year, frankly, sometimes two or longer, like you look at Notion, you look at Figma, you look at Airtable, a lot of those products were very, very small user bases for three, sometimes four years. And then they made, and, and they just kept perfecting the craft until they got it out. If COVID didn't hit and, and we didn't get kind of like rushed into the market, I, I think that we would have had a lot more time to, to get that craftsmanship. Because what you don't want to do is build in, an, in, in a silo. And, and when you're building for customers that are in your beta, even if there's only 10 of them, but they're the 10 people that you think that you're trying to serve for, you're not building in a silo as long as they're in the middle of your process. And you feel like they're pretty representative of the 10,000 people that you want to go to after that. And, and it allows you to kind of get make get further progress in, in your area of insight and innovation before you kind of put it out into the world. And then anybody who's like, oh, that's a really good idea. I mean, we actually had like a, a few of our uh, kind of folks that ended up copying more or less word for word what we did, some of which are actually really good competitors that have innovated a lot and pushed us to be better down the road. So there is some good that kind of comes out of it. But, you know, you're splitting a little bit of market share. Um, but most of those came from that early beta. They were like literally in our early beta trying our product. And some people even like pivoted their, they pivoted their entire company when COVID hit, their business died. And they're like, I'll just do, this is a really good idea. I'll just do what these guys are doing. So uh, that's another like kind of intuitive lesson. You always hear like, don't talk about your competitors, and blah, blah, blah. Like it's true. You should absolutely like build for your customer, for your user. But at the same time, Competition in, in, in SaaS is, is, is fierce. And I wish I would have been a lot more, I would say, careful and contained around who we were showing the product to in those early days. And I wish we would have left it in an intubation period for longer. Um, because then as soon as you put it out into general release, you just, you've got a whole different set of problems that you're trying to solve. And it can take you a lot longer to get to that. I, I think we would have gotten to the place where we're at now faster if we weren't um, in kind of such a rush from what happened with COVID. Is that the main reason you, you wish you'd stayed in, in beta for longer? I think, I think it's just really like when your product bottoms up strategy like grain is, the better the product is, the faster you do, the better, you know, more like you already went. And um, especially when you are in a product that has like, it's, we're not Notion where it's just static. I mean, not, not to um, dunk on Notion, like incredible product, incredible engineering. 
but there's no real time components of it. There's no video, there's no audio, there's no, you know, transcription. Like, like you can, in our product, like literally make a clip of what someone said 10 seconds ago. There's a lot of like innovation and, and technology that goes into that. And there's a lot of technical upkeep that goes into that too. And I would say, and I would say a lot of the functionality that we've built over the last couple of years, like in particular that live sounds really, really cool. People don't really care because they're in the middle of a meeting and they don't have time. And very few people end up getting a, a workflow. Like I use it because I'm a CEO and I'm a power user. And I actually just used it like 15 minutes ago before I got on this podcast. But like most people don't, and it ended up being a giant waste of, of, of roadmap. And again, that's just kind of like, I think we would have gotten to that insight faster and we would have had less distractions if once you kind of go out into the market, it's just like, it's a total rat race, especially if you have something that's relevant and, it, and it's unique. And I'm not going to say that we were like, there was other, there was other, what we can now, what we'd still call competitors that were in this space before we were, or like right about the same time that we were. But we, I would say really went I would say defined this this motion of, of of creating like shareable snippets from these calls that has turned out to be like really really important to this use case and um, and that while we're still differentiated because it's a really complex you know interaction model on the front end to build and, and none of our competitors have been able to do it even close to as good as we do it still was something that I wish we would have been able to like kind of build more of the tooling and the ecosystem and the pricing models and the ICPs and stuff around that. So that when we went to market, our onboarding was better, you know, our, 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 our service was more reliable, you know, and those are all kind of like lessons in hindsight that, uh, I, I would say I, I would take into doing something like this next time. Maybe I, I build a product that is less dependent on real time challenge, you know, technical challenges because they're, 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 uh, they're beast. But, um, yeah, I, I would say that's kind of my big takeaway of like, why I wish we would have been able to stay in, in a little bit longer. There's so much more um, I'd love to talk about. You know, you, you you were driving some growth through partner channels like the Zoom app marketplace, product hunt launches. Uh, you also told me that 60% of your signups are coming through SEO now. So the work that you've been doing over the last few years has, has obviously been paying off there. But we don't have time to go into all those things. What I want to talk a little bit about is this conversation we had a little earlier about uh, herd mentality and and some of the the challenges that's caused for you and your business. Can you can you maybe give me an example of that? Yeah, I think the one we talked about before the show is just just a very vivid example is SVB. We had multiple term sheets on the back of our Series A for a venture debt, and we talked to like the masses and the crowd, and everyone was like, you know, go with SVB. And maybe that was the right decision. Like in the end, it's actually looking like it's going to work out. We're going to keep our money there. You know, they're, they got a bridge bank, but, but man, that was not a fun Friday. <laughs> it was not a fun weekend. And all, all of our money was tied up there because of the covenants that we have on our venture debt. So we, the whole reason we, we, we went with them was because of kind of, that was the consensus. That was the belief. And, you know, my instincts actually kind of wanted to go with a, a, a different partner that we had a, a term sheet from, and I just kind of ignored it against the consensus. And that's one example. You know, another example is what we were just talking about in terms of launching early. I did not want to launch when we did. I did not want to. I didn't think it was the right move. There was a lot of good that came from it, to be clear. There was a lot of good that came from it. But I kind of got talked into it and I felt like we needed more time in the, in, in, in the container and it put us on a very different path that in some ways was better and in some ways was worse. And I would say in, in a lot of ways, I wasn't necessarily prepared for since I, I kind of allowed myself to be, you know, more or less convinced because as a founder, 
there's this difficult thing because you're trying to be like humble. You recognize you don't know everything, but then there's moments where you just get reinforced over and over again. Where you're like, I know a lot more than my investor here, th- this investor does. And in some ways they know more than I do in other areas. But when it comes to my product, it comes to my business, when it comes to our strategy, like if anybody else knows that better than you do, um, you should try to learn as much as, you know, from them as, as, as you can, and then make your own decisions on first principles. But the last thing you want to do is outsource. Like another example of this is we raised the series A, I was always against advisors. And then we got basically kind of like uh, pressured into taking on an independent board seat because Tiger doesn't take board seats. And so we brought in, you know, an advisor that was a really smart, talented person who worked at a really big company. And gave us a lot of advice that was not very applicable for our business. And so then we followed that advice kind of blindly and we spent a lot of money in areas that were just like literally $0 in ROI. Like it just made no sense for our business because it was a playbook that was applied to that someone else had. I tried to be like, Oh, you know, I'll learn from other people. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, be a know-all, but it was also kind of against my instincts of what I did. And every single time that I like end up outsourcing the thinking, which happens a lot, frankly, when you're a founder, when you're tired, when you're exhausted and you're just like, man, I can't, I, I'm just like every day, I'm just waking up and just trying to like slog through it till the next day. And that's when you have to be really, really careful about outsourcing your thinking. Cause you're going to pay the consequence of the decision because whoever told you doesn't have any accountability. They just have their playbook. And if you, you know, try to be like, oh, you know, I don't know anything. This person knows something and, and let's just do what they say. It's, it's, it's going to be the wrong call most of the time, and especially over your instincts. And then second of all, you're the one who's accountable over it. So you might as well go with what you think is best and that you have control over because it's also really, really frustrating and energy draining when you've made a decision or you've gone down a path that you weren't super excited about or you weren't aligned with. And then it turns out to be the wrong path. And now you've got to spend all of the energy to kind of like undo it all while like, you know, begrudgingly, you know, feeling like, man, I should have just trusted my own instincts. So that's kind of like, I guess the, my, my, my big takeaway, you know, over, and I didn't really have that takeaway when I was a co-founder twice. It's really more as has been when that's the CEO, there's a difference between like being responsible for, you know, the curriculum, the programming technology, like I was a mission you and being responsible for the whole business and, 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 and the cap table and, and the people inside of it. And it's really overwhelming. It really is. And it's something I have to be very vigilant on of, of being you know, really rigorous and making sure that I'm not outsourcing that thinking because you, as a CEO or as a founder, you can't outsource that accountability and you're going to pay the consequence no matter you know, whether it was good advice or not. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful lesson in terms of trusting your instincts and it's not always like go with your instincts, but if something deep down is telling you something doesn't feel right, you should pay attention to that and at least, you know, explore that. And as you said, you know, the thinking behind that to make sure you, you're comfortable with making the right decision. It's, it's the blindly following and outsourcing to someone else's authority that you just cannot do. Take people's advice, but break it down into its first principles, apply it to your situation, your knowledge, and then make a decision off of what you think is best, not just like, oh, I'm tired, so and they know more than I do, so let's just do what they say. Like, that is a disaster. So, so do you think there's a danger that you become a bit of a micromanager in terms of, like, every decision? Like, if I talk to your team, would they say, he's kind of hands-off, lets us make those decisions? Like, where's the balance when, when you have to kind of walk that line between giving people trust and, you know, some level of account- accountability to make the decision, but ultimately, you know, your head 
is on the chopping block, right? If things don't work out. I think until you have like very clear product market fit, which usually sometimes has the series A, sometimes has the series B, uh, you should maintain as much of that control as possible while allowing decision-making at the edges. So like you have to take accountability over the core strategy and those core decisions and then allow people to within the context of that decisions that made to, to solve the edge case problems, to solve it out on the edge, you know, to solve it out um, as you take it to those end steps that as a founder, you almost certainly don't have time to do. And they're going to make mistakes. Absolutely. But the thing that you can't really do is split up a strategy amongst, you know, a mix of, of, of executive minded folks and more like depend. So there's this kind of progression of dependent ICs. So I, IC meaning individual contributor, independent ICs, and, you know, and then you continually progress up until you get to become an executive and the people you partner with and the people you put into those kind of decision-making roles, if you go back to back, um, they have to be able to operate and have prior experience at that executive level of ownership. And, and, and I love Peter Drucker's book, um, The Effective Executive. Um, so I guess I'm already skipping to one of your, you know, rapid fire questions at the end, but like, if you haven't read The Effective Executive, please read it. And if you're finding yourself in this like balance that I'm talking about of like, how do I strike this balance of not being a micromanager, but also like seating, you know, keeping enough control that you can kind of shape the craft of the product and the outcome and the, and the, and the process. Because if you don't give that, if you don't give people clarity about what they're trying to do and they don't understand that you're not going to be happy with this result and it's not their fault. It's your fault because you took, took someone who probably didn't have the prior experience. They didn't have a playbook or it was the wrong playbook. And you were tired or exhausted or overstretched or whatever, or, 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 or trying to focus on something else. And you hoped that if you, you know, gave them a direction to run, that they're going to kind of figure it out. And they just don't have the context. They just don't. Unless they're your co-founder or unless they're, you know, at that executive level, um, they almost certainly don't have that context. It's very, very rare. And so your average person that you're hiring in your business needs to be able to kind of work in an environment where, and that's what I think is then oftentimes easier about hiring engineers at startups. It's really hard to hire great engineers, but it's not that difficult to manage great engineers because you have a product development process where they, 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 the spec is laid out, the requirements are clear and they execute and they, they give feedback and they contribute on the edges. But ultimately like it's very uncommon and it probably shouldn't be common for an engineer to, to set the, the strategy or to, you know, they can influence and get feedback and absolutely should be part of the process. But oftentimes you're not expecting an engineer to just be like, hey, here's a feature, go figure it out. The product manager does a lot of that work up front. And that level of work needs to be done, whether it's in sales or whether it's in marketing or across the board. And it's, that's just kind of the paradox of being a founder, especially a CEO, is you just don't have really time to do that. But I would, say, I would just catch this with another piece of advice, which is I just hire slow. Like hire really, really slow, especially in an environment like this. But do the job yourself. Know exactly how to do it, especially if you've never done the job before. Like I've never done sales, never done marketing. I haven't done a lot of these things. I was always a product person. And I wish I would have spent more time on the front lines of doing those jobs before we tried to hire people to do those jobs, hoping that they would come in and like teach us. And in many ways they did, but they just oftentimes don't have that full context. So, so to wrap up the answer, it's like, I think that the smaller you are, the more centralized decision-making and control should be. And the more focused on the, the, the people that you're hiring should be able to usually be pretty technical and, you know, they're, they're executing and contributing inside of a, a, a well-scoped problem, as opposed to just kind of like the free, uh, the free and easy path of like, go figure this part out that I'm too busy to figure out. And that just, it doesn't, it, in my experience, it doesn't work. 
Yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, on that note, let's uh, let's wrap up and get on to the the lightning round. So, I've got seven quick fire questions for you. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Okay. Uh, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Work on emotional intelligence. I went to Stanford touchy feely class on a weekend, so I didn't go to GSB. But you can just anybody can sign up. It's one of the most life changing things I ever did. Um, I had a lot of reasons that were going on in my life for why I did that, but like I was given some advice to like work on my emotional intelligence um, and to grow as a leader. And I'm really glad I, I did, and I still have a long ways to go. What book would you recommend to our audience, and why? So, The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker that I mentioned earlier is uh, life changing once you kind of really have like a clear definition of like what an executive is, and it helps to kind of balance that like what can I expect from this uh, level of person versus, you know, that level of person. Um, good strategy, bad strategy I read recently, which is just really, really game changing around focusing the limited resources that you have and doing it in a deliver, uh, deliberate and intentional way. And then also uh, loved recently, which is a product marketing book by the Silicon Valley product group. Right. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Do it your way. Uh, authenticity, vulnerability, like just, embrace yourself and who you are you're there for a reason like you're taking risks that others either are and now they're your competitors or, or or haven't and 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 there's just there's a reason where you're at and believe it, that there's uh good in just who you are and while you're always trying to get better i would say like um lean into to what makes you unique and what you believe is true and and for me a lot of times that's authenticity and vulnerability like i just um i always try to just lead from being from a place of reality as much as possible. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Uh, it's super trendy right now, but uh, it's Zero, which is an um, intermittent fasting app. I started it on January 1st, and I'm on like day 70 or something right now fasting. And so um, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's just for me, it's great because it just regulates my glucose levels. I don't track them closely, but I just like feel like more balanced energy instead of the spikes of eating snacks. Um, and then the other one is Strava, just get outside and ride a bike or go on a run. And the more that I track it, the more it motivates me. And there's a social network around it. How many hours do you fast each day? Uh, I try to hit 16. So I've at least hit 12. I only have one day that I only hit 12 and every other day that I didn't hit my goal was like 14 or 15, but most of the time I do 16 yesterday at 22. Wow. Wow. I just didn't eat dinner. (laughs) (laughs) What's uh, a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Oh my gosh, my wife won't kill me because it's her idea and it's such a good one. But we we do home exchanges, we do home swaps, uh, where we stay in someone's house and they come and stay in ours. So I mean, if you're seeing like the holiday or whatever, it's like that's real. We do it. We just did it with a family in Hawaii. And the services that are out there right now are just like so archaic and old and crappy, and they're like not brought into the modern world. And just like there needs there's absolutely an opportunity, especially in an economic downturn, for like someone to I would probably build that if I weren't building grain, because it's just something I it, we, we we live. We've done yeah, over 10 home swaps over the last decade. And every single one of them is an amazing experience. We save tons of money. It's, it's, we go to places we wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise go. It's awesome. So there's, a, there's a definitely a business idea there. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, I met my wife when I was like 14. Uh, we didn't talk for like near decade, basically. Um, we were just in the same grade. And then we started dating after Thanksgiving we got married. We got engaged by uh, um, by Valentine's Day and married by May. So, like, uh, from basically cold turkey to married in like six months, um, I went to BYU. So it's kind of more normal there. 
yeah, it was, it was kind of wild, but we got engaged after only dating for like two months. And, uh, when people find out about me, that, that that's, it's pretty shocking that like any person um, would, would do that. And I'm, I'm glad I did. It was awesome. It worked out. I, I probably married up higher than I would have if I would have waited longer. Your relationship sounds like a hockey stick growth curve, like not much happening for a long time. And then whoosh. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Family. I have three kids. Uh, golf. I freaking love golfing. It's just the like, even if you're playing the same course, it's just every time it's different. Every shot is different. It's just like managing your mental game. Um, very similar to poker, frankly. Um, and then the last one is fitness. I've just learned that, holy crap, like if I can get my endorphins going naturally, it just changes everything about my long-term mood, my, my, my short-term mood. I'm, I'm, I'm just better in every way. So I've developed a lot of routines since COVID hit actually it was right before COVID. Um, to where it finally culminated in Ironman last year because it was just like so um, obsessive. I just was got so obsessed with it, and it, it was it's something that I, I want to carry forward for the rest of my life because I had like seven or eight years where I basically didn't do any working out or any fitness, or any running, and I just life is way better when we got endorphins mm-hmm. flowing through your body and your outside. Thank you, man, for uh, for taking the time to share your story, and uh, I think a lot a lot of uh, really useful lessons and perspectives. On, on the journey you've taken so far. Uh, if people want to check out Grain, they can go to grain.com. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm reasonably active on Twitter. So it's uh, twitter.com slash Michael Glenn A. And then uh, my email, if uh, you ever want to reach out to me, I'm, I'm pretty responsive. My Twitter DMs are on email. Um, it's Mike at grain.com. Awesome. Thanks, man. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I wish you and the team the best of success. Hey, thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Cheers. Do you dream of owning a profitable online business or are you looking to sell yours? Bupos.com is the number one platform for entrepreneurs and founders alike. With Bupos, you can discover exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. As the first platform to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers, Bupos makes it easier than ever to acquire a recurring revenue business without personal guarantees. Their experienced M&A advisory team is dedicated to supporting you throughout the process, ensuring a smooth transaction. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next venture. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? Jotform Tables is a solution you've been looking for. Jotform Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and Jotform Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your Jotform forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But Jotform Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative with conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity platform for your team. You can even automate tasks and workflows to save time. Ready to centralize your data, boost your team's efficiency, and take your productivity to new heights? Sign up for free at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform.
Attention SaaS founders, are you determined to scale your B2B business to that coveted million-dollar ARR milestone? I've got something that can help you get there faster. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly companion on the journey to SaaS success. Packed with proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with B2B SaaS founders who've been where you are, this newsletter is your ticket to accelerated growth. Each week, in just five minutes, you'll gain access to a treasure trove of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you navigate the challenges of the early stages and scale your business to seven figures and beyond. So why wait? Become part of a 4,000 plus strong community of SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already harnessing these insights to drive their growth. Visit sasclub.io slash newsletter and subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today. Gain the support and expertise you need to keep forging ahead on your SaaS journey.